Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Perfection is the Voice of the Oppressor, a Spirituality of Imperfection. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 8th, 2009. In the Old Testament reading this week from Isaiah 40, the prophet depicts a mighty God enthroned in the heavens who looks down on humanity as what Isaiah calls so many tiny grasshoppers. We read that this God, quote, brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. He blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Turning his gaze to the night sky, Isaiah worships this God who, quote, brings out the starry host one by one, and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. But Isaiah's mighty God so absolutely other, doesn't disregard the lowly, the insignificant, the obscure, or the unimportant. Be assured, writes Isaiah, your way is not hidden from God. His mighty power is matched by his tender love. Unlike, the, unlike us, God never grows weary or tired. His empathy and understanding of our human frailties knows no boundaries. Isaiah acknowledges that you might be weak and weary, tired and faint, that even vigorous youth sometimes stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, he says, renew their strength. A few years ago, I started reading at some length in the desert monastics of 4th century Egypt. Before I started reading them, I thought of them as Christian superheroes. After I read them, I realized that I couldn't have been more wrong. Given that these oddball saints are so far removed from our own time, our own place, our own culture, and even our own practices of the Christian life, I kept wondering what it was that drew me to them other than historical curiosity. And then, about a thousand pages later, I realized that I loved these monastics for what John Chrysavis calls their spirituality of imperfection. They made me feel very much at home with my own many imperfections. If society's holy grail of, of perfection, moral, spiritual, financial, physical, psychological, familial, vocational, if society's holy grail of perfection is ultimately the voice of the oppressor, as Anne Lamott calls it, then these desert eccentrics pointed me to the liberating practice of embracing brokenness without shame or embarrassment. My own, my others, and even the world's. 
They told stories that explained myself to myself. The early ascetics fled the corruption of church and society to seek Jesus in the lonely solitude of the remote desert. If you spend any time in a real desert, you can imagine the intensity and severity of their chosen orientation. Sometimes they lived in communities, but at other times they chose what they called quote-unquote open combat as solitary hermits. They saw what the 5th century John Cassian called integrity of heart or integral wholeness. Seeking personal transformation and not merely theological information, they favored the voice of experience over all theoretical claims and wanted human healing over book learning. But the conclusions of their spiritual experiment are not what you might expect. With a fascinating mixture of remarkable candor, brutal realism, unqualified empathy, and very wry humor, they describe how they experienced in the vast nothingness of the Egyptian desert a cacophony of voices in the interior geography of the human heart. They sought wholeness and discovered brokenness. In the famous words of St. Anthony the Great, who died in 356, they concluded that we should, quote, expect trials until your last breath. Their reports from the front lines of spiritual battle reveal a disarming transparency. As he put it, without any obfuscating embarrassment. And they never despised anyone or belittled them for human failure or frailty. As I review what I underline in John Cassian's two books, The Institutes, and then another book called The Conferences, here's a sampling of their own self-diagnosis. Lethargy, sleeplessness, unsettling dreams, impulsive urges, self-justification, seething emotions, sexual fantasies, pious pretense that masked itself as virtue, self-deception, clerical ambition, crushing despair, confusion, wild mood swings, flattery, and the famously dreaded noonday demon of Asadia, which some people described as a wearied or anxious heart that suggests very close parallels to clinical depression. And if that were not sufficiently unnerving, Cassian further admits that, quote, there are also many things that lie hidden in my conscience, which are known and manifest to God, even though they may be unknown and obscure to me. Which is to say, it's even worse than you can know. Cassian gives many of the most practical examples. He wondered why a monk who joyfully renounced great wealth later succumbed to intense possessiveness or irascibility over a tiny penknife, a needle, a book, 
or a pen. He observed monks giving each other the so-called silent treatment. Or what provoked a brother's anger at a dull stylus? Or consider this description of a church service that included, quote, spitting, coughing, or clearing our throat, laughing, or yawning, or falling asleep, end quote. Or why is it Cassian's friend Germanus asked his elders that, quote, superfluous thoughts insinuate themselves into us so subtly and hiddenly when we do not even want them, and indeed do not even know of them, that it's very difficult not only to cast them out, but even to understand them and to catch hold of them, end quote. Where, in other words, was the off-switch for a psyche in overdrive? Why all the involuntary internal garbage? Despite this unrelenting realism about human foibles, the desert mothers and fathers didn't live like helpless or hopeless victims. Far from it. They exuded confidence in God's unconditional love, they exhibited, exhibited tenderness and patience towards each other, and especially to their own selves. They steadfastly avoided the faintest hint of judgmentalism, rejected every manifestation of extremist zeal, and chose not to compare themselves with others, or even to be overly anxious about their progress. These desert dwellers believe that we can make genuine progress through vigilance and trust in God's grace. Even though, paradoxically, the more you mature, the wiser you become regarding your own faults. We are, concluded Cassian, not angels, but only human beings. And so advises Mother Syncletica, who died in the year 400, quote, we sail on in darkness, end quote. Confident in Isaiah's reminder that our way is never hidden from a God who is infinite in his understanding and unconditional in his love. And for further reflection, in what sense do you agree or disagree with Anne Lamott that perfection is the voice of the oppressor. Consider the ways that we deal with imperfections, denial, shame, blame, judgmentalism, self-justification, and pious cliches. Contemplate the saying of St. Anthony that we should expect trials until your last breath. Why do Christians sometimes shoot the wounded? And for further reflection, see the book by John Krasavgis. The title is called, In the Heart of the Desert, The Spirituality of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. For books this week, I reviewed Joseph Ratzinger, better known today as Pope Benedict XVI. The title, Jesus of Nazareth, New York, Doubleday, 2007, 
374 pages. For over a century now, the historical critical study of the Bible has been preoccupied with the chasm separating what we can reliably know about the Jesus of history, and on the other hand, the Christ of post-Easter faith. Efforts have been made to identify layers of traditions in the Gospels, with contradictory results, but widespread agnosticism about the real historical Jesus. Ratzinger believes that the historical critical method is an indispensable dimension of exegetical work, but he also insists that the method has its limits, and that it's not, therefore, sufficient by itself. Despite the wide variation of texts in the Bible, he assumes a prior act of faith that believes in a single overall direction over, or an overall unity of the Bible. As he puts it very simply, I trust the Gospels. After his short methodological introduction, Pope Benedict offers a comprehensive survey of the life and teachings of Jesus. Jesus was not just a rebel rabbi or an enlightened teacher of prudential morality. In one of the most interesting portions of the book, Pope Benedict uses as a friendly foil the book by the acclaimed Jewish scholar Jacob Neusner called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. Neusner gets it right, he thinks, even though he can't commit himself in faith to Jesus, because he understands that Jesus substituted his very own self for all that Jewish history and theology holds dear. Jesus himself, in Neusner's view, claimed to be the new Torah, the new temple, the new Sabbath, and the new Israel. Benedict shows this to be the case as he works through chapters on the Sermon on the Mount, the baptism and temptation of Jesus, his proclamation of the kingdom, the Lord's Prayer, the disciples, the parables, the Johannine material, Peter's confession, and the transfiguration. There are very few surprises in this book by the leader of global Catholicism. His aim to write in a personal and pastoral style, but sometimes digresses, digresses into more scientific theolo theological jargon, much of it about older German thinkers like Boltmann, Harnack, and Ulicker. This gives the book a distinctly Eurocentric feel. He writes in the introduction that the book is, quote, in no way an exercise of his magisterium, but is solely an expression of my personal search for the face of the Lord. Everyone is free, then, to contradict me, end quote. Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, Jesus of Nazareth. For film, I review the recent Batman movie, The Dark Knight, from 2008. Gotham's Lieutenant Jim Gordon and District Attorney Harvey Dent need superhero Batman, just as the mob needs the anti-hero Joker. 
But if the good guy wears all black, dispenses vigilante justice outside the law, refuses to reveal his true identity, causes good people to die, and is plagued by doubts, then you have a morally ambiguous plot with a genuinely dark night. And so the Gothamites wonder, is Batman more hero or more menace? Both the Gotham cops and the crime mob get more than they bargain for when they employ their moral archetypes. The Joker, played by Heath Ledger, is crazy bad with his stringy hair, purple suit, scarred face, and smeared makeup. He cares nothing for money, but only wants to watch Gotham burn. The technical effects reminded me of James Bond movie, as did the love triangle involving Batman and Dent. Actor Heath Ledger won a posthumous Golden Globe Award for his role as the Joker, but I found it distracting to wonder just how much his real-life descent into darkness and death was life-imitating art. The Dark Knight, 2008. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a long poem by Marilyn Nelson. The title is called Church Going. Marilyn Nelson was born in 1946. She's an African-American poet who earned her B.A. from the University of California at Davis and then a Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota. She's the recipient of numerous awards and since 1978 has taught at the University of Connecticut where she's professor of English. Marilyn Nelson, the title of the poem, Church Going. The Lutherans sit stolidly in rows. Only their children feel the Holy Ghost that makes them jerk and bobble and almost destroys the pious atmosphere for those whose reverence bows their backs as if in work. The congregation sits or stands to sing or chants the dusty creeds automaton. Their voices drone like engines on and on and they remain untouched by everything. Confession, praise, or likewise giving thanks. The organ they saved years to afford repeats the Sunday rhythm song by song. Slow lips recite the credo, smother yawns, and ask forgiveness for being so bored. I, too, am wavering on the edge of sleep and ask myself again why I have come to probe the ruins of this dying cult. I come bearing the cancer of my doubt as superstitious suffering women came to touch the magic hem of a saint's robe. Yet this has served two centuries of men as more than superstitious can't. They died believing simply. Women, satisfied that this was truth, were racked and burned with them for empty words we moderns merely chant. 
We sing a spiritual as the last song, and we are moved by a peculiar grace that settles a new aura on the place. This simple melody, though sung all wrong, captures exactly what I think is faith. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? That slaves should suffer in his agony. That Christian slave-owning hypocrisy nevertheless was by these slaves ignored as they pitied the poor body of Christ. Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble that they believe most who so much have lost. To be a Christian, one must bear a cross. I think belief is given to the simple as recompense for what they do not know. I sit alone, tormented in my heart by fighting angels, one group black, one white. The victory is uncertain, but tonight I'll lie awake again and try to start finding the black way back to what we've lost. Marilyn Nelson. The title of the poem is Church Going. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 8th, 2009. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin. <clears throat>